When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up next on the Liverbird Sailing Podcast. I think that for us, it's not really like a bucket list item. I think we've determined that it's a lifestyle and we love the lifestyle. And I think there's so many things that we love about it and there's lots of challenges as well. But I think that the variety that you get with living on a boat and cruising is pretty special because every day is different. And we are a little bit different in our, our cruising style because we do work remotely. So we, we do get a little bit stressed out because of, of having to work, the twins and the boat, and we get a lot stressed out, but it's still my happy place. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverbird Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work and travel on their sailboats. My guests are sharing inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week, I am excited to share with you yet another form of the liveaboard lifestyle. My guests are Sarah and Will Carey, who originally set a goal to buy a boat in Mexico and sail it across the Pacific to Australia, and this is exactly what they did. However, a few months after they had sold their boat in Australia, they found themselves longing for the liveaboard lifestyle again. Now they call themselves commuter cruisers, spending time at home in Canada and as liveaboards in Mexico. In this episode, we talk all about sailing in the Pacific Northwest, Mexico, the Pacific Islands, and Australia, so it is literally all about the Pacific. However, there are some great tips about the lifestyle, buying and selling boats, and I finally get a good explanation on how the hydrovane works from the experts themselves. So here we go with Will and Sarah Curry. Why don't we get started by you guys introducing yourselves? Sure, yeah. No, my name is Sarah Curry, and uh, I say I've been a sailor now for about 10 years. 
Yeah. And we're in, we're, we're talking to you from uh, Vancouver, Canada, and we're excited that you're Canadian as well. And our boat at the moment is down in Mexico in Puerto Vallarta. And I'll let uh, my husband give you an update on him as well. Yeah, so I'm Will Curry and uh, Sarah's better half. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been sailing pretty much most of my life. I uh, grew up sailing in local waters here and did a trip with my family when, I'm, when I was younger. And uh, we've been off our boat since February and we can slowly start to feel our gills drying up. So we need to uh, get back to the boats as soon as possible, hopefully in the fall once hurricane season's over. Yeah, that is definitely a long time to be off the boats. And really the reason I wanted to talk to you is specifically because you have so much experience and specifically on that side of the continent and in the Pacific. So can you give a little bit of an introduction? What kind of sailing have you done in the Pacific? Yes, well, um, the Pacific is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Big ocean. It's, and it's a big ocean. <laughs> we, our first boat, we actually bought almost 10 years ago to the month and we bought it down in Mexico. I was completely new to sailing. I had really hardly even been on sailboats, um, but we had this dream and we went ahead, the timing was right, and, and we bought this boat in Mexico. Uh, we were there for about a year, the boat was there, a year and a half, like yeah. just over two seasons. And then we set out from uh, Banderas Bay, uh, Puerto Vallarta area, and we sailed our longest, my longest passage, which was 19 days to the Marquesas. And from there, we continued on through all of the different island groups in the South Pacific, and we ended up selling our boat in Sydney, Australia in 2014. So that was kind of our first big adventure. Uh, we were boatless for about six months and we realized, you know, just how absolutely amazing the lifestyle is. So we came back to Vancouver and we started looking for our second boat. So we've had our current boat. Uh, her name is Kai Quest. She, she is a Genoa 43 and we've had her for about five years now. So we lived aboard when she was up in Vancouver, um, and then we sailed down the west coast of uh, the U.S. Uh, in 2017, 2018, and then she's been in uh, in Mexico now since early 2020. Yeah, uh, all of our experiences on the is pretty much <laughs> in the Pacific. I've also done some. I sailed out to Hawaii, and then Hawaii back to Vancouver. And then I've also done a separate trip on a, on a Passport 40 sailing to the Galapagos Islands. And uh, I've also done uh, some delivery work on uh, bigger yachts up and down the yeah. West Coast. So, yeah. But all in the Pacific. So what kind of boats did you sail on? Uh, do the crossing and what, what do you have now? So the first boat was a Beneteau First 405. And uh, it was a great sailing boat, kind of an older IORS design performance oriented cruiser. And yeah, it was, it was interesting though when we were looking for our first boat because we had it in our heads from talking to people and you know reading that that a production boat was just absolute no go for crossing an ocean. So that was kind of the word 10 years ago. And we had a list of boats and we had consulted um, John Neal, John Amanda Neal's um, list of boats and we were kind of looking all over North America and finally we found three boats to go look at and they were all three in Mexico, which is great. And one of them was this Beneteau First 405, so um, a production boat from the 80s. And honestly, the price was right. The boat was right. We went aboard and it was like 
right away, this is this is her. This is her. We're, we're buying this boat. So um, she ended up being a, um, a really, really good buy. And, mm-hmm. and we realized that having a production boat was actually a, a huge benefit um, to our plan. Yeah. And, and, and then our second boat, which our current boat now is uh, Genoa 43, mm-hmm. uh, 2001 model. I think with, um, with any production boat, it's a matter of just narrowing down on the ones that are built well and really suit your needs mm-hmm. layout wise. Uh, we particularly love this model because uh, the way it's built, uh, it's yeah. got no strainer, no platform. Sorry, no strainer, no platform. Uh, it's <laughs> strainer. Yeah, there's no sorry, no pan construction. No pan construction. Yeah, it's uh, all glassed in. It's really, really solid. Yeah, it's a pretty for a production boat. It's actually yeah. very well built, um, and I think that uh, they have eras and models that were maybe not so good, and other ones that are quite good. So. Uh, we love it. Uh, it's got lots of space because it's fairly beamy, a 14-foot beam, and it carries the beam uh, all the way aft. So we get three cabins, which is great with the uh, boys on board. And uh, yeah. So yeah, I think the word is still out there that production boat is not for ocean crossing, which is really annoying. I know there's a lot of people obviously doing it. And uh, it's something that I'm hearing a lot too. It's really annoying trying to decide what do I want. <laughs> That whole notion of um, oh you have to be able to have a, you have to have a full keel boat to cross an ocean or you know it's kind of um, that's the old way of doing it and I think if you look at the lists nowadays I always refer to the uh, the Ark Rally which crosses the Atlantic every year and they've got you know almost 250 boats crossing the Atlantic and out of those boats look at how many of them are production boats it's mm-hmm. it's actually quite amazing so. You can cross in anything. If you're doing high latitude sailing, I think that's a different story. But um, we are definitely fair weather sailors that like to uh, cruise in the tropics. Yeah, and I mean, downwind sailing on a production boat, you end up in beautiful destinations like the Pacific Islands or even in Mexico, where it's just lovely to sit in the cockpit that is nice and roomy with a swim step and, and all that. So I can definitely see the appeal there. And uh, I have so many questions about your experience, but <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about the Pacific Islands. What were your favorite places? And are you hoping to go back to any of those at some point? Yeah, we absolutely Everywhere. are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, really everywhere. I would say each of the island groups have, I mean, their own culture, um, their own different and very varied beauty as well. The Marquesas Islands, which are the first island group that most people come to when they when they cross from the West Coast, is um, they are, they're stunning. They're, you know, these super, super high peaks. They're very rugged. There's just, they're... The, the people there are so kind and welcoming. Um, lots of tattoos. We got our tattoos there. But I think just because that was the first place that we made landfall, that those island groups have really stuck out. And also, we didn't get to spend a lot of time there. We were there for a few, I think only three weeks before we were heading off to the next island group, which is the Tuamotos, which are totally different because they're just atolls, really just a fringing reef. And so we would, we would probably spend a lot more time in the Marquesas. Now, think, now think, that we know that what comes next, we would actually, I think, slow down a lot more. Yeah. Not we're, we're no longer rushing to getting anywhere, if you know what I mean. I think in uh, all of French Polynesia, we could spend a lot more time, and yeah. I think we would definitely try and get the 
extended stay uh, mm -hmm. visas so we could stay there longer and possibly leave the boat there for a hurricane season and then go back to it so we can do it in more than one season because there's just so much to see and it's so stunningly beautiful and while we were there we kept saying it gets better the further west yeah. you go so we made we we moved on to um, a, an island uh, really just a, a rock called Nui and that was quite spectacular with water that was you know, you could look off the boat and, and see the bottom in a in 100 plus feet. And then Tonga, which was really special um, because there was a lot of quite easy cruising within certain island kind of groups. Mm -hmm. I kind of describe it as like the tropical version of the Gulf Islands mm -hmm. here in uh, the Pacific Northwest because mm -hmm. there's like 50 different anchorages all within a 100 mile radius. Yeah. And uh, it's it's. It felt, it felt a little bit easier again, for sure, in Tonga. Yeah, I have a, a, a friend or, or a couple of friends who actually moved from Finland to French Polynesia to buy a boat there because of the sailing, because they thought it's actually not, it was gorgeous sailing, of course, but also because there aren't that many like hurricanes to worry about. And it's just kind of easier going. It's a nice place to learn. And obviously, it's beautiful there. So why not? But before you got to all of to all of the beautiful islands on the other side, you did have to cross the ocean, which is a rather big one. Uh, then on your Beneteau, and how was that? Uh, regardless whether it was a Beneteau or not, but how was that crossing? How long did it take you? Well, Will had Will um, had crossed oceans before, so he really knew what he was getting himself into, and we were really fortunate that Will's brother Ben and his uh, now wife, Katie, they actually also joined us for that long passage. So we were relatively quick. We were 19 days from when we left uh, Punta de Mira in Mexico to when we made landfall in Nukuhiva in French Polynesia. And, you know, the <laughs> I am not going to say it was comfortable. I remember the first at least week was you're really getting used to being out there. Yeah. It was my first real sailing, you know, in a big swell. And we had three competing swell patterns. You know, there's always wind. Um, so 20 plus knots. Um, and then we finally we got into the intertropical convergence zone. So the doldrums. And I remember we didn't lose the wind for very long. It's just very cloudy and overcast. And it just, it just feels completely different. And, and then when we made it through on day 13 and we got into the Southeast trades, we were just up again. We were doing 185 nautical mile days. It was 25 knots behind us. You know, we were just flying along. So we always joke, though, that at the beginning, Katie didn't speak for the first three days. <laughs> she was so seasick, <laughs> she yeah. She was definitely, yeah, I think we all felt a little bit <laughs> off, but uh, she probably felt it the most. And I really do think it takes four or five days to not only it. not only get your sea legs, but just get in the groove of mm. being in sea and learning how to cook in a kitchen that's mm -hmm. bouncing all over the place or a galley that's mm -hmm. bouncing all over the place. There's a lot of those little things that you take for granted when you live on land, but yeah. uh, when you're out in the middle of the ocean, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> yeah. Well, that must have been quite the experience for you, Sarah, if you bought the boat in Mexico and you essentially left from Mexico and then your first bigger sail is to cross the Pacific for almost exactly. three weeks. Sarah's, yeah. Sarah's first yeah. time on the water sailing was our... 450-mile passage from uh, from Guaymas up in the Sea of Cortez to, the, to Mazatlan. To Mazatlan. So. Yeah, it's interesting because within Pacific Mexico, there's actually a, there's 
lots of diversity and there's lots of different um, areas you can go. But really the longest passage I think that we did was like four nights. Maybe it was just three nights. I think it might have been four. So that, you know, that was my shakedown cruise was like a four night passage. And then the next, you know, next few months later, we were heading off like straight out into the ocean. So, yeah, it was uh, trial by fire and jumping into the deep end and all that good stuff. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you mentioned then that you sold your boat in Australia once you eventually got there. So What's the story with that? Was that always your plan to sail there and sell it? or And how did that process go? Yeah, we kind of had a sort of a set window in our lives to do that trip. And we just thought that, um, mm-hmm. A, getting the boat back to Vancouver is a hell of a lot of upwind sea miles that we were not interested <laughs> in doing. <laughs> but also that it's it's a pretty good market to sell in just because they have you know less inventory than what we would have up in North America. So it was always our plan, and uh, it actually pretty much went by the book for us yeah. in terms of what we expected. Uh, we listed the boat. Well, we go, yeah, we got there, and we we got the uh, the boat has to be valued. Um, mm-hmm. So we got kind of a low value put on the boat because it had just crossed an ocean. You know, all these things were wrong with it, which wasn't actually true. Um, and then we imported the boat into Australia. So you actually have to import the boat in order to be able to sell it. You don't have to, but. Um, well, we paid, so you pay 10% GST on the valued price. And then because our boat was built in France, um, American boats actually, I think, are duty-free, but our boat was built in France, so we had to pay another 5% in duty. And then we listed the boat. And we were really lucky. It sold within about a month of us mm. being ready to, to truly part with her. So uh, we, we stripped all the major gear off. You know, we took our satellite phone off, sold that separately, our life raft, the dinghy, the outboard. Um, so but we were able to, to actually come out on top. I think a big part of why the boat sold so quickly is that it was rigged for offshore sailing and it had solar panels, a mm-hmm. water maker, the hydrovane, yeah. you know, it was well kitted out. And I think that helped differentiate the boat from other standard Beneteau 40s mm-hmm. that you would see on the market. And everything in Australia is very expensive to get there. So when they can find a boat that's fairly well outfitted, uh, it's very appealing. And being a production boat was um, was absolutely huge to, mm-hmm. to sell down there. Yeah, in, in yeah. Sydney especially, they they love Hansas, Benetos, Bavarias, Catalina. You know, any anything that has a name behind it, they were mm-hmm. very keen on. Wow, that's really interesting and and super quick sell in a month. And I've been I've been browsing yacht worlds uh, for months now, and I keep seeing the same boat. So to sell that in a month, that's interesting. But also super good to know about all the import tax and and that sort of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. you kind of yep. you have yeah. to factor that in. I don't think everyone. Well, just to clarify that. too, you, you you can actually not import the boat and sell it, but you when the boat sells, you'll pay the duty and taxes based on the selling value of the boat mm-hmm. rather than the um, declared value that you would do ahead of time. So then there's more, some more things that you could get into about it, but um, it was a relatively straightforward process, all things considered. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is interesting. It is something that I think now is a thing in North America as well with the updated, I think it's updated um, free trade agreement. Like if you buy a boat that's made in America or Mexico, you can bring it to Canada and not pay any duty. And if it's made in France, you have to pay. So there's always that. So, okay, so you sold your boat 
And you're like, okay, we've done our big adventure. And then what you said, six months later, you were like after another boat or how long was that? Yeah, it was about six months. Initially, um, we were quite happy to be boatless. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We felt great, you no, know. No maintenance. <laughs> well, it was just also such a big achievement because we had planned, you know, to buy a boat, cross the Pacific and sell it in Australia. And we'd been planning for that for since the day that we met, honestly. So it'd been five or six years. And then to actually have made it happen just felt so good. So we were really flying pretty high on life for those six months. So we were able to do a bit of travel by land. Uh, and then and then we came back to Vancouver and we realized just how much we missed living on a boat. You know, we, how we absolutely loved having that the small space and being able to explore even the, the local cruising in BC. So um, because it is it's really, really fantastic um, just in our local yeah. waters. So right away we started looking <laughs> again. <laughs> And we were really lucky this time we found a boat quite close to home. We found the exact model of Juneau that we were looking for in Nanaimo, BC, which is, you know, an hour and a half ferry ride from, from where we live. So when you were looking for the second boat, given that you now had all this experience from crossings and living on a boat, what were you looking for now? A big mm. cockpit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, it, honestly, it sounds it was. actually kind of funny, but that is probably our number one criteria because yeah. what we quickly realize, you know, especially cruising in warmer waters, is mm -hmm. that you live in the cockpit. You know, yeah. that's your that's your living room, and so the more comfortable it is, the better. And so one of the best things we actually added to the boat was a full enclosure around the cockpit, and uh, we find that down in the tropics we have a. Uh, a material what they call FiberTex, which is basically like a sunshade material, but you can still see out. And so we now have the cockpit fully enclosed with that. And up here in the Pacific Northwest, we have um, clear plastic uh, windows for an enclosure. And uh, it just makes it so much more comfortable to be out of the elements when you're out there sailing. It just, it's a lot less fatiguing. And maybe some false sense of security, well, but also a bit of security. of security when you're completely enclosed. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, also um, we we did want to have that third cabin yeah. uh, just because we knew that we were growing. Might be. <laughs> so so what was the boat that you then ended, ended up with? And did you, yeah, you said you bought it in Nanaimo. So what yeah. was the boat? It's a 2001 uh, Jeannot uh, Sun Odyssey 43. Yeah. And it's more known, The they made two models. They made actually a deck saloon model and then our traditional model. Most people know the deck saloon model, but uh, ours is the non-deck saloon. And it was also important when we were looking, we really did want to find a boat that was built 2000s or newer, uh, really just for resale. You know, she she's a, a great boat. She's already 21 years old and she doesn't look it. I mean, she is in really, really good condition. And compared to all the things that were really starting to go on our Beneteau. I mean, the the wiring was a bit of a mess, mm -hmm. and like there were just there were just things that on a newer boat, uh, even though she's not that new, everything's a little bit easier. She's just laid out very easily. You know, there's actual diagrams for the wiring and and how things work. Yeah, newer so engine. newer engine. Uh, so we know when when it comes time to sell her, uh, she should be be another easy sale. We hope. Mm -hmm. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you bought that and then... You headed down to Mexico again, and uh, how was that crossing? Because on the first boat, you bought it in Mexico, but now you sailed down from Vancouver area. You know, a lot of people who are leaving from the Pacific Northwest, um, they buy their boat up here, and then their first major passage is the Washington-Oregon coast, which, to be honest, is not really my favorite passage. Um So, when we got to San Francisco, Sarah <laughs> did specifically say that she will never do that passage again. <laughs> so I feel for the people who start out doing that passage, I luckily was quite experienced by that point and um, kind of know that there's better sailing ahead. It's really foggy. It's mm-hmm. really cold. It's really wet. It was it was exciting to be back out there, and we were so excited to be you know continuing our, continuing our adventures. And this was in. August of 2017 that we headed down, but I was glad when we made it to San Francisco. We actually we actually had quite a good passage, and um, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. But it's more just the dampness and the mm-hmm. coldness of the fog, <laughs> and just being out there alone in these foggy, rolly conditions. It was. Just... I mean, we literally the first night we got out there, we got out just into this huge fog bank, and we couldn't even see the bow of our boat. And we were just there speeding along in like seven knots, good wind, but the a lot of the fishing boats out there don't ping a signal on AIS. So we were having to keep the radar on and literally dodging fishing boats with zero visibility. So it just, it's not the most relaxing type of sailing. <laughs> yeah, I know that sounds really stressful for sure. So that was now a few years ago and you since took on a couple of new crew members You're twin boys. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I'm really glad two, they two deckhands. <laughs> two deckhands. Not not quite yet. They're not exactly pulling their weight yet. Yeah. They. So the boat. We we've been commuter cruisers. I would say uh, since that time. So we still come back to Canada for six months of the year, and then we are on board for six months of the year. So we have left our boat in various places throughout mm-hmm. California, and the boat was strategically positioned all the way down in San Diego. And uh, we came back to Canada. The boys were born, and we returned to the boat with them when they were just a few months old. And it was great. We were in a really nice marina there, actually, and we were marina bound with with the little babies. Uh, but it was wonderful to have them on the boat because the smaller space was almost easier with them. Yeah, we just really enjoyed it. And then when they were six or seven months old, is when we. Before they could walk, <laughs> is when we decided to head down to Mexico, and we sailed down the Baja Peninsula and around made landfall in Cabo, and then uh, up to La Paz that season. So, didn't make it very far. We were planning to stay a lot longer in the Sea of Cortez, but then that was February 2020. So, yeah, so they've already got a pandemic thousand, hit. <laughs> a thousand sea miles under their belt, yeah. and they don't even know it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, they certainly sell more than I have, so <laughs> <Way to go. laughs> gotta start somewhere. Yes, exactly. Gotta yes. start them young. <laughs> but yeah, that's a really interesting strategy, if you want to call it that, to go back to Canada for you know half the year. Because it also makes sense. Uh, I was just looking into this, uh, so it's on top of mind. But for like healthcare, if you want to stay within Canadian healthcare, you have to spend some time in Canada. You can't just that's leave. been our main re- reason, actually, and especially now with the boys, we're just you know we we want to keep their care cards. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Well, I do want to talk about the liveaboard life because you obviously have spent now. How much time have you spent in Mexico? Well, the boat has been there since January 2020. And yeah, we were aboard for a few months in 2020. And then we were back last fall. Not as long as we would like because of COVID. We, Not we as definitely long. had to come home early. Yeah, times. we had high hopes for last season as well. And we went down to La Paz in November 2020. Uh, and, you know, things were actually pretty good. Uh, and we sailed over to Mazatlan and then down to Banderas Bay. But then Canada announced the hotel quarantine uh, mm. factor. And so I actually pulled the plug because I did not want to spend any amount of time stuck in a hotel with with our twin 18-month-olds. <laughs> Norm- normally, we like to take about a week to get the boat decommissioned. And uh, so I was kind of like, oh, okay. And then each day, Sarah would come in and say, I think we need to go home a couple of days early, mm-hmm. which means I'm getting the boat you yeah. know, prepared while Sarah is trying to tame the beasts. And uh it was, was, it was a little bit stressful. It was, stressful. And it was really just because of the the wrench that COVID has kind of thrown into, um, well, mm. everything. But for me, it was just getting getting back before before that came into play. So we were only able to spend three months on board last last season uh, before coming back to Vancouver. So I bet you are very eager to get back to it then. <laughs> we are, yeah. We're watching the scenario down there really closely, but um, we are we are planning for it. <laughs> So I'm curious about um, if you're able to compare the experiences of sailing and sort of doing the liverbird life in Mexico and what you did in the Pacific Islands. I have an idea that the um, Pacific Islands are a lot more expensive, but let, let's hear it from the, straight from the source. I'm wondering about the costs. Are they, uh, is Mexico or the, the islands cheaper? funny because that's like one of the most common questions we get is you know what how much does it cost to go cruising and someone once told us that it's going to cost basically whatever you have you know depending <laughs> on where you are and it's kind of true because i think that you sort of just morph and adapt your lifestyle based mm-hmm. on what's available i mean yes french polynesia is more expensive but the reality is you can go there and eat baguettes every day for two dollars and you know catch fish and you can live you know a fairly sustainable life and there's very few marinas to be tempted by so you're just constantly on the hook Uh, whereas i would say in mexico we we kind of do both we're in a marina certainly more since this time around with the boys it's easier to be like in a marina uh, or you can be on the hook all the time. So it's, it just kind of I think we depends. almost spend more in Mexico than we do I in think French we, Polynesia now that I think In some ways, it. yeah, yeah it's, it's changed a little bit. Yeah. Certainly the, the price, you know, if you're going to go grocery shopping and do all your provisioning, Mexico is, is much less expensive. Uh, but our lifestyle has changed this time in that uh, we are spending more time in the yeah. marinas that are available. Whereas mm-hmm. we know if we sailed to French Polynesia, we would be at anchor 
95% of the time because there just aren't very many marinas. We never really tracked our finances in terms of like how much we were spending, but I feel like it was just kind of consistent all the way through base. And, you know, when you're in a country where the beers are cheap, you stock up on beers. If you're somewhere where the rum is cheap, you stock up on rum. I mean, it's, I think you just sort of roll along based on uh, where you are and what you're doing but yeah marinas will gobble up yeah. a lot of your budget marinas are the big that's that's a bit and of then a... also in mexico we end up doing more motoring there's less sailing yeah. when you're in the pacific islands and in the south pacific you're really only sailing you have no excuse to motor because there's always wind so we our, our fuel costs in mexico are a lot higher yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's an interesting point for sure, because that's certainly something to take into consideration as well. It's somewhere that you have to spend money on if you end up motoring a lot. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. Another thing I wanted to pick your brains about is all sorts of gear that you probably have acquired over the years. And you said you took some of the stuff off the boat when you sold it in the first boat, when you sold it in Australia. And so... What's some of your favorite gear? I don't need a complete list, but you know, something that's made like a positive impact that you definitely want to have on your boat. Yeah, well, we'll talk before about the full enclosure. That was actually quite a big investment for this boat. Um, so that that was a huge thing. Solar panels, we're really into having the flexible solar panels. Uh, that's our, our main form of power generation on board. Uh, I would I would really not go cruising on a boat now without AIS transceiver, so able to receive and transmit. It's just a, a must-have. Uh, water maker, that's another thing we do have, and it kind of is a game changer for comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people see it as a nice to have, but to be honest, in the South Pacific, if we didn't have a water maker, we would have been thinking about water all the time. Where are we next going to fill up our water? You know. Are we going to be taking that water away from locals? Um, how do we collect the rainwater? So mm-hmm. it just made life a hundred times easier. <laughs> um, it's it's all the it's all the systems and gear that makes you more independent yeah. and more confident in your systems on board. I think that's the main thing because the way the lifestyle is, you have to be able to fix things and deal with problems as they come. So if you can add something on boat that a makes it more comfortable, but b also gives you that confidence. In knowing that if something goes wrong, you have a fallback. Uh, I mean, a good good example of that is your steering system. You know, what are you going to do if your steering fails? What's your fallback? What's your scenario? Do you have an emergency rudder? Uh, you know, that's just one example. The water maker making you independent from having to find your next water source mm-hmm. is a pretty nice thing. And just the fact that you are um, always know that you're going to be taking on yeah. good water. Yeah, for sure. I, that's a really good point about the sort of comfort and confidence and how, uh, how those can be impacted by, by additional gear that you have. But you touched on emergency steering there, and I know you're associated with hydrovane, and I know something about it, but let's just pretend that I'm a six-year-old. So do tell me, what the heck is a hydrovane and how does it work? <laughs> yeah, so it's our family business, uh, and we manufacture them in England. And uh, what it is, it's actually a mechanical self-steering system. So it steers the boat by the wind, unlike an autopilot, which is steering the boat based on like a magnetic compass course, although you can get ones that also have a wind-based option. But um, an autopilot, of course, is using power to generate, using electricity to generate power, whereas the wind vane is using purely the wind. 
So you basically set the vein for your point of sale that you're on. So if you're on a beam reach, you set the vein for a beam reach and it'll hold a beam reach. So it's uh, it's a wonderful thing because the boat is always trimmed out properly when you're steering to the wind. And then your job is basically just to keep an eye on your course and your direction and where you want to go. And then some systems like the hydrovane, which is an auxiliary rudder, it is also doubles as an emergency rudder. So if you did have a, a steering failure or rudder failure, you have that fallback. That was a really good explanation because I was looking into it. I was like, oh, I'm just going to have them explain it to me. So I've never yes. explained it before. It's yeah. the first time. He's never had to say. <laughs> it's amusing as well because I was a total novice sailor. Yeah. And, you know, to cross an ocean, I would say that having a hydrovane taught me a lot about sailing because you know that if it's not steering a good course, there's something you need to adjust in the sails. So you kind of learn how to trim your boat properly. And then also because we were doing so much downwind sailing, we would set our course for that kind of, you know, almost almost down, dead downwind course. And we would know that the chance of an accidental jive was so slim because even if the wind shifted a little bit, that meant our course would shift with it. But we would never be in a position where the wind might shift overnight and suddenly we're, we're going to accidentally we're sailing, jive. Sailing so by the lead we're sailing by the lead. Yeah. So it was a huge comfort for sure. I don't, you probably wouldn't have sailed across an ocean with just me without the hydrogen. <laughs> I don't think the two of us would be on the boat at the end of it. <laughs> it is a, a true third crew person. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. And yeah, like you said, it does add both comfort and confidence. So yes, I can definitely see the, uh, the benefits of that. So thank you for, for explaining that. And the next question I like to ask people who have been sailing for a while, because the answers tend to be quite different. And we talked about your boat a little bit and talked about your gear. But if you had an unlimited budget and you could change anything, either something existing or add something new, what would you change in your current boat? Well, uh, we is, would add a second a, hull. Is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? It, it's our, our answer has changed recently, and yeah. I think it's only because we have twin two-year-olds, and they are taking up a lot of room on the boat. Um, and we're also realizing that we do because we work while we travel. We, we work while we travel. So for this season, we've actually hired um, an au pair to come and sail with us, which is going to be amazing because it will allow us to have that third eye over the boys, and we do not need that for safety. So. Our boat is starting to feel like it's not tight. We can totally manage. But when we spend longer term, like when we do in years in the future, when we are full time on board and living aboard year round, we do want a little more space. So we're, we 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 will be going to that catamaran. Probably going to two halls. Two halls at some point. Um, if it was just the two of us, our boat is honestly perfect. I don't think I would change anything. I love her. We've, we spent a lot of time getting the boat set up yeah. just the way we like it. We've pretty much gone through every single system on yeah. board. And I can honestly say there's really not another piece of gear <laughs> or something that I actually would want to add to the boat because I think we're pretty much there. Yeah. But um, yeah, it just comes down to space and yeah. having kids on board. Yeah, I can understand that. Having three adults and two kids on forty-three foot, you know, I have to figure out how to fit them both into one cabin in their pack and plays. Like, there's going to be no headroom, and 
We'll, we'll see how it all goes. It's doable. <laughs> Kids are adaptable. Well, since you do have experience on living on a couple of different kind of boats and, and cruising along and crossing oceans and all that, I'm wondering if you would have some tips or advice to give to somebody uh, like myself who is thinking about making the transition from my current apartment life to living on a sailboat. I mean, I think you don't have to aim for and save for and get to that perfect ideal boat as your first boat. You know, like we saved a set amount of dollars to buy our first boat. And that was, we were just going to buy within that budget, even though she wasn't our perfect boat, our forever boat, whatever was going to be available. And we, you know, we got a great boat. Mm -hmm. Um, But things do kind of change and evolve. And I think we're proof that like, as your life evolves, Um, And how you want to cruise, like right now we're kind of, we are commuter cruising, but we know that in a few years we'll want to be more full time. So that's going to change kind of what, what type of boat we have. So I don't think you have to plan and save and and get your forever boat. I think the reality is there is no perfect boat. So (laughs) you can spend your whole life looking for the right boat and you'll never go anywhere. And what's the point? So but I, I would think, say we, see, we do see it sometimes where people are holding out for like, that's the only, that, that's yeah. it. And, and they kind of miss out on maybe four or five years that they could have been out there actually doing it. Yeah. Um, and I would say um, not buying a boat that's a huge project. Yeah. I know that John Neal is really big on this and it's he's totally right. Because the reality is you can go buy an older boat that might be a good deal and is supposedly a seaworthy boat. But you could spend half your life dealing with stuff, you know. If you start to get into major structural changes or rigging changes, it's yeah. it really chews away a lot of your time and energy. And by the time you're ready to go, you're exhausted. And you probably have no money left. So I think if you can find something that's a bit newer and um, that kind of ticks most of your boxes, then just roll with it and figure it out along the way. And it, your first boat doesn't have to be your forever boat. Yeah. I mean, it's great if it is, but um, I think uh, nowadays people do sort of work their way up the ladder just like they do in real estate. Yeah, that's a really good point uh, to keep in mind. I like that your first boat doesn't have to be your forever boat because I think a lot of people think of it like buying a house. You are buying the house that you're going to grow old in and retire but it doesn't have to be like that for boats and actually i was just chatting with a a listener of mine uh and he is in the process of buying a boat and was going through the same like he's going to buy something that was a little different from what he thought and do that for a few years and then reevaluate after getting all the experience on that so just to be able to get to sailing and get to the lifestyle a little bit sooner so that's definitely some really good advice there for sure Well, my final question for you is, what do you love about this lifestyle? You know, you did your big bucket list adventure years ago. Many people would have just called it at that and said, okay, been there, done that. You've decided to come back. It's, you know, it's it's a big part of your life. And you're now bringing your, or you have your boys to share it with. So what is it that you love about the Liverpool lifestyle, living on a sailboat and, and all that? I can go first. I, I think that for us, it's not really like a bucket list item. I think we've determined that it's a lifestyle and we love the lifestyle. And I think there's so many things that we love about it and there's lots of challenges as well. But I think that the variety that you get 
with living on a boat and cruising is pretty special because every day is different. You know, it's not, there's no, it's not like when we find that when we come home, time really accelerates for us. And we notice that more with the boys when you get in your routines and you have to be in a routine because they love the routine. But before you know it, six months oh have gone gosh, by and true. it feels like it's like two weeks. Whereas when we're on the boat, I find that I, I remember moments mm-hmm. more. I cherish it more. I don't know. I feel like when I am on the boat and when we're really in that zone, I feel... I feel the freest. I feel like this happiness in my soul. I feel I feel like I really connect with the other people out there. You know, there's so many other cruisers. You just find all these like-minded people who understand what you're doing, with, you know, and you beca- you have these friendships that just blossom so quickly. I feel like I'm maybe most myself when we're on board. And I think that does just have to do with my general, like, state and feeling free, feeling like we can do anything, go anywhere. And we are a little bit different in our, our cruising style because we do work remotely. So we, we do get a little bit stressed out because of, of having to work the twins and the boat and we get a lot stressed out, but it's still my happy place. <laughs> that sounds absolutely amazing. I love that you shared all of that. Well, do you spend time in the online world? Is there somewhere where listeners can go find you and, and follow your adventure, learn more about Hydrovane and all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. We wrote a blog uh, back when people wrote blogs. So that was <laughs> 10 years ago, but it's still up and it's svkiquest, K-A-I-Q-U-E-S-T.com. And that outlines kind of all of my writings from the South Pacific and our, our first kind of adventure. And now we we don't really write, but we have um, our, our business website is hydrovane.com and we're on Instagram. You can find us under hydrovane, at hydrovane. So, so we are there. That is perfect. I will link all of that uh, in the description so we can go check it all out. Well, Sarah and Will, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience with me and everybody who's listening, because it's really lovely to talk to people who've been at this for a few years as someone who is just getting into it. So thank you for sharing all of that knowledge and experience. Well, thank you for having us. And it really regenerates our excitement to get back to the boat, who we we do miss her dearly. And we We hope everything is well aboard, but um, talking about it, you know, really makes us excited to to get back to it. Yeah, and I I would say as just a final tidbit for any listeners is just go as soon as you can possibly Mm -hmm. do it because not a single person that we've met out there cruising has said, oh, I wish I'd done this later. Everybody wishes they'd done it earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it sounds kind of like cliche and obvious, but uh, just make it happen. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you so much for listening. As always, there are more stories about sailing and liveaboard life coming again next week. In the meantime, please come say hi on Facebook or Instagram, where you can find me as Liveaboard Sailing Podcast. See you again next Wednesday! the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.